Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. If you enjoy Jerusalem Unplugged, you may also like to listen to Stories from Palestine podcast. My name is Crystal. I am originally from the Netherlands. I am married to a Palestinian and I live in Beit Safafa between Bethlehem and Jerusalem. I studied history and tour guiding and I produce a weekly podcast called Stories from Palestine. You can find it on your favorite podcast player or go to the website Stories from Palestine. Info. Welcome to Jerusalem Unplugged, the only podcast dedicated to Jerusalem, its history, and its people. Your host, Roberto Matza, will bring you guests discussing their relationship with the Holy City. A journey through history, society, feelings, and hopes for the future. Follow the podcast on all social media platforms at Jerusalem Unplugged. Welcome to Jerusalem Unplugged, the podcast dedicated to Jerusalem, its history and its people. I'm Roberto Mazzi, your host, and today we're going to discuss the British conquest of Jerusalem in 1917. This is part two of a series dedicated to Jerusalem in World War I, which will be developed in five episodes. In the first episode, we looked at Jerusalem in the late Ottoman era and we discussed the beginning of the war in 1914, and we also briefly mentioned some of the events that marked the life of Jerusalem during World War I, particularly focusing on the invasion of the locusts, the lack of resources, famine, starvation, and indeed the terrible conditions for which people lived uh, the years of the war. But also, we looked at the other side of this uh, uh, coin, in a sense, as we looked at the diaries and memoirs of individuals who lived in Jerusalem throughout World War I, and we also got the perception that life was still going on as we gather information about parties, daily life, and in a sense, we see that together with the dramatic events of the war, we also have regular life being carried on by Jerusalemites. Now, in this second episode, we're going to talk about Jerusalem uh, in the mind of the British in particular, in how Jerusalem played a role on the other side of the warring parties, and how Jerusalem was essentially 
define it as a tool necessary in order to boost the morale of the British, and it became a wartime target of the British in particular. We will then focus on the events that led to the British conquest of Jerusalem, and we look at how Jerusalem was surrendered to the British, and we will see the first few years of British military occupation of Jerusalem, British military rule in Jerusalem. But let me start with the question of um, what we may call the value of Jerusalem at the beginning of the war, particularly for the British and the French. Now, the, the thing is that Jerusalem didn't really have any uh, military relevance, as we know that. Uh, the city lay on hills, and it has no military value, and it did not possess any key resource. We need to put aside the map of the Middle East and the Middle Eastern Front and look elsewhere in order to understand the increasing importance of the city, particularly in British military thinking, as well as in other circles. The political and strategic significance of Jerusalem had its origins in the European Front, and particularly in the failure of uh, the Allies uh, on the Western Front. For instance, in 1917, we have some major events that unfolded the disastrous defeat of Italians by the Austrians, which led to the famous Caporetto, or this massive withdrawal. We also see the Russian Revolution, which forced the Russians to abandon the conflict. Now, this process unfolded late in October, November, so very close to the time the British eventually conquered Jerusalem, but the revolution essentially started months earlier. We also see uh, mutinies in the French army following, you know, the failure of plans, um, particularly by Robert Nivelle, the French military commander, which was trying to launch a new offensive on the Western Front, but it ended with hundreds of thousands of young French men dying. So, Nothing really is going as according to plans on the Western Front, but more importantly, we also have a change in leadership, both in France and in Britain. So in December 1916, David Lloyd George, who belonged to the Liberal Party, took over as Prime Minister. Now, Lloyd George was very much looking for a personal victory and a moral reward for his country. The country had been involved in the conflict since the beginning, and it was paying a very high price in terms of human resources. The Prime Minister was uh, a supporter of the Eastern Front. He believed that a strong effort in Palestine and Mesopotamia would, ch would have changed the course of the war. The important thing was to shift the focus of the conflict, remove the, the front uh, with the Ottoman Empire, and defeat the Germans there and then focus on the Western Front with a renewed uh, strength in order to end the war. Like-minded individuals in the cabinet believed that it was possible to achieve a faster and in fact a more decisive victory in Europe once the Middle East had been tackled. Lloyd George was unable to set a comprehensive war strategy, and, and this is important to, uh, to, to say because you know, there were other members of the establishment that didn't believe in this particular uh, policy and certainly strategy. But eventually it was decided to proceed with military campaign in the Middle East. Again, plenty of disagreements 
there are disagreements about the targets, there are disagreements about who should lead the, uh, the military effort in, uh, in the Middle East. And eventually, Lloyd George appointed General Edmund Allenby as the leader of the Egyptian Expeditionary Force, which gathered British forces mostly from the Empire, so mostly from Australia, New Zealand, and with very few uh, troops from mainland Britain. In a sense, despite the renewed attention to the Middle Eastern Front, we also have to notice that many in Britain believe that this was a sideshow. And as a sideshow, the troops involved in this sideshow should have not been British, but should have been part of the imperial forces. Australian, New Zealanders, as I said, Indians, too. Now, I don't want to go into this point. Obviously, this has to do with British military history, but also with perceptions of the Middle East at large. The point that Lloyd George was trying to make is that he wanted the Middle East, and particularly he wanted Jerusalem, to boost the morale of a nation at war. Allenby proved to be the right man for the job. Uh, he understood that uh, the Middle East required a different kind of warfare, unlike the one that we saw in Europe, obviously based on trenches, where there was no really pushing forward. Allenby understood that obviously this was a, a war of mobility, where a mobile effort was needed in order to defeat Ottoman German forces. You know, the point that some historians have made is that Allenby pushed forward over 40 miles and took a biblical city that eluded the West for over 700 years. Uh, in almost four months of fighting, on the other hand, General Haig advanced only five miles and captured an unknown ruined Belgian village on the Western Front. So we, we have stark differences here. And, uh, you know, the work of Matthew Hughes, who was a guest of the podcast, is very important and illuminating in, in this respect. He really tells us about uh, the different strategies uh, implemented and also the perceptions uh, they were developed by the people. You know, they saw that the war was really moving forward in the Middle East. We're still in Europe where soldiers were stuck in the trenches. were not really able to move forward much. In fact, many times they had also to withdraw. Now, what Allenby achieved was certainly less important in the grand scheme of the war against Germany. But it did produce a tremendous effect in terms of propaganda morale. And I think this is uh, the... Well, the takeaway of, uh, you know, the British capture of Jerusalem overall. In early 1917, the Middle Eastern Front, as well as other fronts, were really in a stalemate. And as I said, by the end of June 20, 1917, General Allenby eventually assumed command of the Egyptian Expeditionary Force with instructions to prepare for an offensive during the autumn and the winter. And Lloyd George personally ordered the newly appointed chief of the uh, expeditionary force to make Jerusalem, these are the words of Lloyd George, a Christmas present for the British nation. And as far as the Prime Minister was concerned, Jerusalem was to be taken not matter of the cost. The symbolic value of the city was the main reason it became the object of such intense military scrutiny. And the conquest of Jerusalem was planned and staged in order to enhance the nation's morale. Now, obviously, how to conquer Jerusalem was left in the hands of Allenby, who proved to be the right man for the job. 
The point is that the British had only very broad and generic strategic plans for the future of the region. So we need to think about that military strategy had to go hand in hand also with uh, policies and the politics of the future of the region. So the conquest of Jerusalem has to be understood also in the uh, sort of larger context of the wartime agreements like the Sykes-Picot Agreement signed between France and Britain in 1916, which essentially divided up the Middle East. You know, 1916 was not exactly a great year for uh, the French and British forces. You were losing both on the Western Front. British forces were withdrawing from Gallipoli. British forces were captured in Mesopotamia, and yet they signed an agreement, creating what loosely we can say it's the modern map of the Middle East. A year before, going into 1916, the British also corresponded with uh, Usain, the Sharif of Mecca, who was essentially and effectively an enemy. He was the Sharif of Mecca and uh, Medina, so the protector of the holy cities of uh, Islam. And he was also an Ottoman subject. So the uh, famous Usain Mekmaon correspondence, where the British promised a land to the Arabs. And by the end of 1917, we also have the issue of the Balfour Declaration, where the British promised the Zionist organization to create a sort of entity in Palestine for the Jewish people. They didn't really say they wanted to create a state, nor anything different. They kept everything very vague. So all of these agreements, as much as they you know, provided some details here and there, you know, lines, borders, they made promises, but they would also be very generic as to the future of the Middle East. One interesting point here to mention about Palestine and Jerusalem is that both in the Sykes-Picot Agreement and in the Hussein-McMahon correspondence, Palestine was to be discussed later in time. The status of Jerusalem was to be, again, discussed after the war. It was understood that due to the presence of the holy places, obviously we're talking about the Christian holy places, the British didn't want to engage either with the French, with the Italians, nor with others to discuss what to do next. So they basically said, you know what, let's wait. The end of the war, and then we will talk about it. Obviously the Balfour Declaration changed that because promising Palestine to the Zionists, you know, made things slightly different and made Jerusalem a sought uh, sort of reward for the Zionists. It can be argued that in late 1917, the focus of British policy making the Eastern Front became Jerusalem. Obviously, they had to prepare for the war effort. They had to cross the Suez Canal. They had also to think about, uh, you know, every single step, how to essentially take the Ottoman Empire out of the war. But a lot of efforts uh, and a lot of energy were spent uh, dealing with the question of Jerusalem. So, for instance, we know that the foreign and war offices began to build as early as the spring of 1917 policies in order to deal with the future conquest of Jerusalem, which was still mainly a personal concern of the prime minister. But the prime minister began to tell his uh, officers, please prepare for that moment. One of key of officers was Mark Sykes, who eventually was also involved in the uh, Sykes-Picot Agreement, obviously. It's not only the foreign and war offices that were obviously preparing for this, but also the news department of both offices, because this was going to be a propaganda tool 
and an important one. So, from the early stages of the planning of the possible military operations in Palestine, also news that Jerusalem sooner or later was to be conquered by the British began to spread across Europe. And so it's from the very beginning that Jerusalem became a propaganda tool and an element for a campaign that was yet to be developed and effectively even planned. But, you know, this was already promoted. The British government was creating so much expectation that the Anglican bishop in Jerusalem, that by then was obviously exiled and was uh, living in Egypt, became overexcited and, in fact... He was even convinced of uh, fulfilling a sort of a Christian reconquista. And in May 1917, Rennie McInnes, the bishop, wrote to the High Commissioner of Egypt, saying, Well, the desirability of taking official possession of every building erected originally as a Christian church in Jerusalem, which is now used as a Mohammedan mosque, tells us that maybe we should reverse the uh, purpose of those buildings. In other words, what he was writing was that once we conquer Jerusalem, perhaps we should turn those uh, mosques that used to be churches into churches again. Now, this was a personal opinion of McInnes and reflected the feelings shared by some of the representatives of the Anglican church at the time. Certainly the British were you know, a little bit more careful with that. In fact, they were very much concerned with another issue of religious and political character. Remember, we mentioned in the first episode, you know, during the mobilization, the Ottoman Sultan claimed to be the spiritual leader of the Muslims, the Caliph of Islam, inside and outside Ottoman lands. And so the British, from the very beginning of the war, uh, you know, paid attention uh, not to displease Muslims, and particularly their Muslims, Muslims, the Muslim subjects of the British Empire, particularly Indian Muslims. So the British looked for Muslim support in the war against the Islamic Ottoman Empire. And Britain also knew that Muslims would never forgive any damage or disruption to the Muslim shrines located in Ottoman territories, particularly in Jerusalem, the third oldest cities in Islam. And so, a note was issued just a few weeks before the conquest of Jerusalem by the news department. This came to be known as Note D. The attention of the press is again drawn to the undesirability of publishing any article, paragraph, or picture suggesting that military operations against Turkey, the Ottoman Empire, are in any sense a holy war, a modern crusade, or have anything whatever to do with religious questions. The British Empire is said to contain a hundred million of Mohammedan subjects of the king, and it is obviously mischievous to suggest that our quarrel with Turkey is one between Islam and Christianity. And, you know, this is an important statement. They didn't want to create uh, any sort of a perception that this was a religious war. Yet, we also have to look at the underbelly of British society, where... You know, looking back at the British history, obviously many believe that uh, a war against the Ottoman Empire and the possible conquest of Jerusalem was nothing more than the uh, fulfillment of what didn't happen centuries earlier, when Richard the Lionheart just uh, looked at Jerusalem but had to withdraw. So many sense that this was somewhat of a revenge or a reconquest 
So it was important to highlight this, to make sure that people would understand that this was not a war of religion. The purpose of this note was to ensure that Muslim subjects, more importantly, of the empire, would not consider the war as a Christian-Muslim conflict. And the British were well aware that using Jerusalem as a symbolic and ideological tool was extremely hazardous and would only be successful if done properly. So, if we look at this retrospectively, it can be argued that Jerusalem in the short term proved to be a winning bet. The conquest of the Holy City helped gather momentum for the Allies and certainly played a crucial role in boosting the morale of the troops. However, looking at the long term, the occupation of the city created a little, created more complex disputes rather than solving existing ones. And we'll see that uh, towards the end of the episode. Once the British took over its administration, the inconsistency of wartime agreements, the promises made to the Arabs and the Jews, and obviously the agreements with the French, but also the extreme romanticization of the city and of Palestine as a biblical land, all came to the fore. Let's now talk about the British conquest of Jerusalem. How did we get to December 9, 1917? Let me say a few things again about the city in the meantime. During the war, as we mentioned in the first episode, Jerusalem experienced uh, you know, famine, starvation, lack of resources, depopulation. Uh, we see many women... Christian, Jewish, Muslims falling into prostitutions as they had to you know, make uh, ends meet in order to provide basics for the children while men were at war. More and more men actually came back from the front and many times disappeared as deserters trying to save their lives. Men, Arab young men, were often either executed or expelled because of a nationalist activity. So Zionists were often uh, exiled, as they were considered like traitors. Foreigners left, and many foreign properties were confiscated by Ottoman uh, troops. We also saw strong implementation of Turkification policies. And all of these Turkification policies alienated the local population. So Jerusalem did experience some terrible times throughout the war. By December 1917, however, Jerusalem was still an Ottoman city. And while many were hoping that things would have changed and they were hoping for some relief, certainly for the arrival of uh, some sort of savior that would bring food, Stability, resources, clothing, bring back the men, jobs, money, opportunities. That doesn't mean that all the Jerusalemites wanted uh, either the British, the French, or someone else taking over. Now, the transition between the Ottomans and the British, when the city changed hands, and, and I, and I want to thank uh, Abigail Jacobson, and I want to just uh, remind you, go back to that amazing episode where we talked about some of these events, uh, is also the moment when the attention of much of the literature, what was published uh, about Jerusalem, shifts away from the city, focusing on the new conquerors, focusing often on the new emergent communal conflict. 
and it's tempting sometimes just to say, well, the British have arrived, everything changed. Well, not really. So let's focus on the city here. And let's see, first of all, how the conquest uh, of Jerusalem by the British occurred. Now, the conquest of Jerusalem and Palestine did not actually prove easy at all. The British attempted twice to take Gaza under the command of General Murray, which when was replaced by uh, General Allenby, as he failed to achieve the goal. And as I said earlier, April 1917, Lloyd George offered the command to General uh, Allenby, and then in June he took over. And this is the moment where the campaign entered a new phase. Let me say a few things about Allenby. He was born in 1861 in Nottinghamshire. Um, he was trying to enter the Indian Civil Service, and then he turned into a military career, and he served in South Africa during the Boer War. In South Africa, he was able to demonstrate his qualities as field commander, which then were used later on during World War I. Allenby was a religious man. He was attached to the Bible, and he also you know, chose the name Megiddo later on as uh, part of his honorary titles. Megiddo is the biblical site of uh, Armageddon, the end of the world. He was known for a violent temper, and he had a very strong character. In fact, his uh, nickname was the Boar. These are all, you know, biographical details of Allenby. The conquest was obviously his plan, uh, but the work was done by his men. Um, at the outbreak of the First World War, he was made a commander uh, on the Western Front. He took part in the Second Battle of Ypres in October 1915, uh, and he took over the British Third Army. However, in 1917, he failed and he was replaced. So... In 1917, when he was appointed commander of the Egyptian Expeditionary Force, actually, he thought that that was a demotion. Remember, the Middle East was still seen as a, a sideshow. So commanding an army in Egypt, crossing in, you know, the Swiss Canal, going into a Palestine, it was seen as like leading a sideshow. So it was a demotion for him. But eventually that changed because the news coming from Palestine turned British... Uh, people, but also the French, the Italians, the Allies, and in a sense, even the Germans and Austrians to pay attention and to make Allenby a hero. Eventually, despite uh, no deed that we led earlier not to use uh, Crusader images, Allenby became a modern Crusader par excellence. Maybe because he had a dramatic figure, uh, but also because he was able to personally benefit from it. So he didn't want other people to use titled crusader, but eventually he did not even deny uh, using that title. What General Allenby brought to the Middle Eastern Front was really a new strategy. Allenby reached Egypt from London, he was still planning, and when he prepared for a first strike on Gaza, he changed his strategy. I'm not a military historian, I don't want to go into all of the details, you're going to find plenty of details about it. But the point is that rather than a direct attack against Gaza, which was an important town on the coast, he actually struck the village of Beersheba first, Bir Saba. Basically, the idea was to outflank the Ottomans in Gaza, so to create a, a sort of a parallel line, which eventually led to the surrounding Gaza, so that the British army could attack on two fronts. What is important here, and I just want to mention, we had an episode dedicated to Gaza, uh, Gaza was surrounded and was evacuated by the Ottomans, so 
there were not many civilians casualties. Uh, Gaza was evacuated. Later on, Jaffa was evacuated by the Ottomans. You know, in some literature, that those evacuations became expulsions. But as I said, they're not really expulsions. It was the Ottomans just simply evacuating for military purposes those areas. Allenby was very careful about supplies. He understood that he needed water in order to proceed and move forward, which is a precious commodity in, in, in the Palestinian desert, back then and even nowadays. And so Allenby has begun to implement a strategy of mobile warfare. In fact, he even relied on the cavalry. He moved the headquarters from Cairo to uh, the battlefield near Rafa. And, uh, you know, later on he moved it again close to Gaza. And once he conquered Gaza, relying on cavalry, infantry, and artillery, eventually he was able to move forward and later on take Jaffa. And from there, he began to plan the conquest of Jerusalem. It must be said that Ottoman soldiers, as well as German uh, soldiers, were not actually able to cope with a new style of warfare. They were all accustomed to some sort of a trench warfare, and they were equipped for that not to be attacked by cavalry. And uh, besides, there were disagreements between the Ottoman forces, the German military advisors, which also tells us that things were not really operating at their best uh, within the Ottoman-German camp. Now, at first, LMB, as I said, relied on the cavalry, but it proved actually to be unsuitable as horses need a large amount of water. And so at some point, uh, you know, horses were dismissed. And the British began to use the rail transportation that was built by the Ottomans, but also began to build new rail tracks. So they exploited the existing Ottoman railways, but also adding uh, parts that were needed in order to reach the locations that they wanted. Back in London, Lloyd George was pushing for a decisive advance. He really wanted Jerusalem by Christmas. Now, Allenby wanted to ensure that he could be in a position to support his army. He needed water, weapons, and other supplies. But by mid-November 1917, the British were moving towards Jerusalem with plans that were not yet fully defined. Allenby wanted to avoid fighting in the proximity of Jerusalem. He was fearful of damaging sacred buildings. And at the same time, troops were recalled on the Western Front. So uh, he was not in a great position to deliver Jerusalem by Christmas. Nevertheless, he was under the utmost pressure from Lloyd George. Now, as I said, this is also a moment where a lot of policies were adopted in relation to Jerusalem. And bear in mind, Jerusalem was not yet in British hands. It was still an Ottoman city. Now, most of the policies were a reflection of wartime agreements. So at some point, the British, Mark Sykes in particular, understood that there were inconsistency between all of that policies. The Sykes-Picot Agreement, the Balfour Declaration, which was, you know, uh, issued uh, on November 2nd, 1917 but also the uh, McMahon-Hussein correspondence. So they were trying to write policies that would bridge all of these different promises and ideas. Obviously, there was a lot of tension. Now, one of the primary aims was to avoid any clashes between Christian and Muslims. 
and as well as between different Christian denominations. The British understood that uh, it was very easy to start up a conflict in Jerusalem and in Palestine at large. In 1917, during the summer of, of that year, the Archbishop of Canterbury, uh, under the suggestion of the Foreign Office, wrote to the Bishop in Jerusalem, Rennie McKinnings, um, about the desirability of sending formal greetings to other Christian denominations once the British would have taken Jerusalem. Now, McInnes was the same one uh, who just uh, was some sort of supporting the idea of uh, turning mosques into churches. So, you know, you have really different opinions and views here. Now, a few days after Allenby's uh, took uh, Gaza in early November 1917, uh, the prisoner of War Department in London questioned whether any of General Allenby's staff were aware of the religious complications surrounding the holy places. Now, this is a very bizarre place where you get questions from. This is not the Foreign Office, this is not the uh, uh, War Office, this is the Prisoner of War Department. Because they dealt with Ottoman prisoners and they understood there were people talking about it. Now, in November 1917, so Mark Sykes, who's now the advisor to the Cabinet on Middle Eastern Affairs, acknowledged that problems might have occurred. And, and he said himself, I believe myself that rows about the holy places are usually of Turkish origin. And I do not apprehend that people will desire to indulge in immediate fights. Now, he seems to blame only the, the Turks, the Ottomans, or the Muslims in a sense. The reality was obviously much more complex. Nevertheless, he advocated some uh, policies that were to be enforced in Jerusalem. We also need to bear in mind that the British began to differentiate between the local dimension and the international ones. So Sykes proposed that Christian places in Jerusalem were to be guarded by men accustomed to police work and that the British political office, officer with executive military authority should supervise the maintenance of the order in the city. And regarding the Muslim shrines, Sykes proposed that the Aqsa Mosque be handed to a representative of the King of Hijaz, Sharif Husayn, and a military cordon established around the perimeter. He also said that non-Muslims would not be allowed to enter the area of the temple without a proper pass released by the political officers and countersigned by the king's representative. So, in a sense, Sykes began to understand there were going to be a lot of problems. And it was better to preempt all of these problems, try to stop people from creating situations that will lead to escalation and potential conflict. But I hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. 
Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I think this is also disingenuous. In a sense, it, it feels like the British believe that people would immediately start a fight. Yeah, of course. Tension was possible and fights could have erupted at any time. But we also have to think about that, you know, for centuries, actually, people in Jerusalem self-regulated themselves and also were able to prevent this kind of incident. Sykes proposed, obviously, to purge the city from any enemy influence, to get rid of the Christian clerics, German and Austrians in particular, and to give the Italian and the French governments a degree of control over you know, the religious institutions. And he also proposed that the city should have been placed under military administration with a strict martial law. And basically saying that he wanted to avoid the French and Italian making any complaints and any claim over the control of the city. So under martial law, Jerusalem would have been impossible to be claimed by French or Italian uh, officers and they would not have been able to compete for the control of religious and educational institutions. But, you know, they were given some uh, uh, rights to take charge of those institutions where the majority of the clergy were French or Italian, but nothing more than that. Lastly, Sykes suggested that a compilation of register of all clerics left in Jerusalem from countries like, German, like Germany, Austria, and others, enemies of the British and the French, were to be written down so that they would have control of all of his people. So Sykes was essentially of the idea to promote a strong control over the population of Jerusalem. Now, the British High Commission in Egypt added that, well, we need also to look at the holy sites. For instance, in the doorway of the holy sepulcher, there was a Muslim waqf a small religious endowment which housed the Muslim family, the Nusebe, who are responsible for the key of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. So, in the event of the conquest of Jerusalem, the Foreign Office wished that the Muslim waqf be maintained in order to respect the status quo and not to upset the Muslim subjects of the empire. There are so many threads here that had to be discussed. So many small but important issues, both at a local and international level. 
So the British understood that policy making here was important. The debate surrounding the occupation of Jerusalem eventually came to a close right three weeks before the actual occupation of the city, when the War Office formalized the main policies to be adopted. And this was in the form of a note prepared by the War Office itself with guidelines for how the announcement of the British entry into Jerusalem should have been made by the Prime Minister. So, for instance, in this note, the suggestion made by uh, Allenby and Wingate with regard to the Muslim holy places were taken into consideration. Non-Muslims would not be permitted to pass the cordon established around the mosques of Omar without permission. Internal security was to be the primary task of a new occupying force. So, again, the, the British began to plan this way in advance. They were also concerned about uh, the tomb of the patriarchs in Hebron, Rachel's tomb, and other holy shrines throughout Palestine, many to be placed under Muslim control, others under Jewish or Christian control. So in London, by mid-November 1917, it was clear that the occupation of Jerusalem was only a question of time. And at the same moment, the divergence between the war office and the foreign office became more apparent. While they were writing the policies, obviously they began to have different approaches. The war office much more practical, more concerned about the practicalities of the occupation. The foreign office also concerned with the in local relations and international relations. The former advocated military occupation of the city and the future of Palestine and the war as a whole remained unclear. The Foreign Office was already working towards the consolidation of a strong civilian rule. Moreover, the commitments made in the Balfour Declaration now meant that a military occupation could be only a transitional administration. At least this was understood by those that support the Zionism and also the Zionists themselves in Britain. And in January 1918, the Foreign Office pressed Wingate for more propaganda material to be sent to London from Palestine, as it was necessary to create support for a lasting British presence in Palestine and Jerusalem. Because yes, you can capture Jerusalem, but then you need to start thinking about what's next. And many in the Foreign Office began to feel that, well, the British were going to stay that Palestine and Jerusalem were going to remain in British hands. Let's see now how the conquest of Jerusalem actually unfolded. Now, some scholars in the past depicted the conquest of Jerusalem as some sort of a personal enterprise of Allenby. Others have pointed out that London pushed for a quick advance. Certainly, many you know, give Allenby total credit. However, we have to look at uh, different uh, uh, aspects here. My belief is that certainly Allenby was able to push the British army into Gaza, later on into Jaffa, essentially come to surround Jerusalem. But eventually I would argue that, well, the Ottoman German forces left the city. They too were concerned not to destroy any single stone of Jerusalem, not to give the impression they were leaving the city in ruins. Now, let's go back to the days. So Allenby troops stopped their march towards Jerusalem after Gaza and Jaffa had been secured. 
and they were tired and they needed fresh supplies. They needed water in particular. Allenby also noted that there was some sort of a sense of dis disorganization uh, in, in the enemy uh, side and decided to press on to Jerusalem. But yet, you know, he had to deal with the reality of lack of resources. So Allenby planned an elaborate siege, which proved to be a more difficult tactic than a direct attack. But the siege would have given him the opportunity to rebuild strength and to take away strength from the enemy. So they were to advance through the main road from Jaffa to Jerusalem and uh, other divisions were to advance to the north of Jerusalem to some sort of uh, encircle the city. So the operation started uh, on November 19. The following day, it was already delayed by a heavy rainstorm. It's winter, which increased the already difficult task of the troops. They were equipped with summer uniforms and really not prepared for the cold and wet weather. And the winter clothing was not yet available. Ottoman troops, on the other hand, were scattered across the hills surrounding Jerusalem. And in the meantime, the German general Erich von Falkenhayn, who had replaced General Friedrich Kress from Krasestein, uh, at the beginning of November 1917, adopted the strategy of survival. And essentially, he left a few contingents as rear guards on the hill surrounding the city, with the purpose of delaying the British advance to give the Ottoman time to organize a proper defense of the city. Moving forward, November 24, Allenby halted the operation, and it was necessary to move supplies from Gaza to the front to provide some respite for the troops which were constantly under small attacks by these Ottoman forces scattered all around. He replaced the 21st Corps with the 20th Corps, which was stationed on the coast under the command of Lieutenant General Phillips Chetwood. In the meantime, von Falkenheim seized this opportunity and reorganized the army that was leading and organized a counteroffensive based on a shock tactic. So essentially, German Ottoman forces began to strike the British on and off. But by December 3rd, Ottoman German troops were forced to stop their offensive because they clearly were in an inferior position and they lacked resources. So we are moving to the beginning of December. On December 3rd, under the command of Chetwood, who was the high-ranking British official, by December 3rd, British officials met in the Judean hills. Now they began to plan the capture of Jerusalem. The plan was to cut the main roads, which connected the city of Hebron to Bethlehem and to Nablus, using the Jaffa road to deploy the artillery. The Ottoman army was left with only one possible route to escape from the city, to the south. Now, between December 3rd and December 7th, the units involved in the attack took positions, while the Ottoman 7th Army which was entrenched in the hills west of Jerusalem, began to plan. Now, obviously, the British didn't know that the Ottomans were planning to leave Jerusalem. On December 7, everything was ready on the British side for the second assault on Jerusalem, and despite the cold and the heavy rain, the British were able to surround it. On December 8, the Ottomans began to withdraw from the city. More out of fear, of the encroaching British troops than a result of a British military operation. 
the Ottoman governor and the German and Austrian consul too fled during the night. No one was left. The governor of the city, Zed Pasha, was the last civil official to leave before dawn with the help of uh, Frederick Vester of the American colony. In the meantime, the, seventh, the 60th and 74th divisions were operating on the Jaffa-Jerusalem road. The 53rd division was not far from Bethlehem and others were expected to be the liaison you know, with all of these divisions. They were not aware of the Ottoman retreat and were up. perhaps were more concerned with the bad weather and also the prospect of a battle the following day. But no fight took place inside the city. And by December 9th, Jerusalem was free of Ottoman and German troops. The last Ottoman soldier is said to have left Jerusalem early in the morning through St. Stephen's or Lion's Gate. The Battle of Jerusalem was not fought and it was over. Let me take you through the details of a dramatic incident of war, which was the surrender of Jerusalem. Now, the narrative of the surrender of Jerusalem was to be exploited as propaganda, and it was necessary for this narrative to be dramatic and glorious. Jerusalem might simply disappeared, merely becoming secondary characters in what was an entirely British theatrical production. Everything was staged in London, and it had to follow the script. But it didn't go that way. Or at least, you know, the, the reality, and then one was created. So, Jerusalem surrendered in different stages, and it was a slow surrender, which began on the morning of December 9, when, before leaving the city alongside the withdrawing Ottoman German troops, the governor, it said Pasha, met the mayor of Jerusalem, Al-Sahini, and ended him the decree of surrender which was to be addressed to the British commander and stated to the English command, since today's of officer shells are falling on some places in Jerusalem, a city that is sacred to all nations, the Ottoman government, for the sole purpose of protecting the religious places, has withdrawn her soldiers from the city. And she installed officials to protect the holy place, such as the Holy Sepulchre and the Aqsa Mosque, with the hope that the same treatment other places, will also continue from your side. I'm sending this letter to you by the acting mayor. Now, the mayor decided to keep the document. So, Hussein al-Husayini decided to memorize and read the document. You know, you never know if the Ottomans are coming back. He might have been accused of treason. So, better preserve the document and say, well, I never really deliver it, right? The Ottoman wanted to rescue their religious credentials in terms of both the Sultanate and the Caliphate. Germany and Austria were Christian countries and had an international image to protect at home as well. So their troops left the city quietly and without unnecessary destructions. Real politic and religious concern played a major role in this decision. So early on 9 December, the mayor of Jerusalem, now delegated by the governor, to surrender the, the city, went to the American colony, lo just located outside the city walls, knocked at the door of the Spafford family, and as the American colony was active in the relief of the local population, the mayor had become a close friend of the family and told them that he was going to deliver the letter of surrender. Now, Bertha Spafford, American, 
although excited by the news, warned him not to go without a white flag as a symbol of uh, truce. We don't know if the story is right, uh, is true or not, but maybe. So eventually, she equipped the mayor with a white flag. This was the first step in one of the several surrenders that took place on that day, as the military and civilian authorities collapsed. Although public order was maintained by municipal police, it was very difficult to control the movements of the population. Civilians left Jerusalem to look for supplies and sought help from the invading army as soon as residents realized that, well, the city had been abandoned by German and Ottoman troops. Wasif Juaria reported that some people were actually cutting down the Ottoman telephone lines and taking them home. I'm not exactly sure for what was the reason for that, but that happened. According to the Spanish consul, Conde de Bayobar, Jerusalem were looking for food, water, clothes, animals, anything. And he noted that along Jaffa Road, outside the walls, pillage was the main activity of Jerusalemites. Everything suitable to be taken was stolen. Now, stolen is a big word that he used. I think it was a bit too judgmental. These people were starving. Was wandering around the city, it was one of these civilian groups who first met two British soldiers, Privates Church and Andrews. Now, these were cooks, and were just looking for fresh eggs for the officers. They had been sent by their superiors to look for some fresh supplies, and here are they meeting Jerusalemites. The mayor, accompanied by a small party, attempted to deliver the keys of the city to them, but they refused, obviously, and they returned to their battalions. Apparently, on their way back, other civilians met the two privates and also informed them that the city was empty and they desired to surrender. Now, this is an amusing episode, certainly not heroic, and reasonably not epic enough to be officially reported. The wanderings of the official surrendering party and the civilians around the city bordered the bazaar, really. While the crowds of Jerusalem were busy looking for any suitable supplies left outside the walls, the mayor, with the decree of surrender in his hands, was still looking for British troops in order to surrender the city. Think about this bizarre image. And following the first informal meeting, eventually, Usahini and his party met Surgeon Hercomb and Surgeon Sedgwick of the 219th Battalion London Regiment. And again, they obviously refused to accept the surrender of the city. Not only were the soldiers not the proper, of the proper rank, but they were actually unsure what was happening here. Was really the mayor genuine? I mean, they were really surrendering the city of Jerusalem. Now, Sayini now met the British soldiers, and this time he met Major Barry and Major Back, who obviously, they immediately contacted their superiors, understanding that something was happening. Lieutenant Colonel Bailey met the party of notables. This meeting was also somewhat bizarre. Bailey walked towards Uswahini, who, according to him, he was there with three chairs in a row on the road. Bailey sat down with the mayor on one side and the chief of the municipal police on the other, and the mayor was finally able to read the act of surrender. Lieutenant Colonel Bailey telegraphed immediately Major General Shear, and then arranged for the occupation of some of the key buildings inside the city. Finally, we're moving forward. Now, at the same time, Brigadier General Watson, commander of the 180th Brigade, arrived at the spot and also accepted the surrender of Jerusalem from Al-Usayini. 
However, details of this particular event in the same ways as other surrenders were called from official reports. In fact, an order was issued to the effect that evidence should be destroyed, including photographs and negatives of General Watson acceptance. Only evidence regarding General Allenby was to be recorded. I must say that a long time ago, looking at the records of the British conquest of Jerusalem and the um, Imperial War Museum, I actually was able to find these records. Apparently, uh, a photographer embedded with the British Army destroyed the records, but he kept a copy for himself, which ended up in the archives. So we were able to reconstruct all of the sequence. Now, around noon, Major General Shia was ordered by General Chetwood, commander of the 20th Corps, to take over the city. And after a short surrender ceremony, another one, which he did so in the name of General Allenby, he entered the city of Jerusalem. After 400 years of Ottoman rule, Jerusalem was officially delivered to British forces. But obviously, this was uh, the military sort of non-stage entry into the city. The British government issued one short official document on the circumstances of a surrender, which detailed the involvement of a parliamentaire, someone you know, was sent out by the enemy, on December 9th. And that was the official narrative for a very long time. The occupation of Jerusalem was a powerful political symbol to be exploited at home. And the fact there were no official reports on the early attempts of the mayor to de deliver the city perhaps also demonstrates the high symbolic value attached to the city by the British. The surrender needed to be glorious, as I said earlier. And eventually, General Allenby made his formal entry into Jerusalem following plans which had been carefully devised by Sykes. On December 11, General Allenby entered the city through Jaffa Gate on foot, in contrast to the German Emperor Wilhelm II, who in 1898 had entered the city riding a horse. The Daily Mail noted the difference with pride, saying, as conqueror General Allenby entered Jerusalem with more simplicity and true dignity than Kaiser Wilhelm, did when he presented himself as a blend of cooks, tourists, and envoy of Allah. Allenby was followed by a procession of British military officials, a small Italian and French contingents, and representatives of religious communities. And famously read in English, French, Italian, Arabic, and Hebrew the proclamation of martial law, stressing that the British would maintain the existing customs in relation to the holy places, which was really the main focus of the British conquest. Even though the text read was vague and essentially promising some sort of religious freedoms, Jerusalemites were generally just happy that the war was over. All paradoxes, inconsistencies in the British policies, policies were yet to become unparalleled. But that was not the important thing because really the occupation of Jerusalem from a local perspective was about ending the war, ending the moment and in the terrible situation that Jerusalemites were experiencing. So, regardless of the background, Jerusalemites really generally welcomed the British, as ultimately the regime of the CUP was over. The process of Turkification, which started before the war, the mobilization of resources, 
the conscription, the state of war itself, all of these strain the relationship between the local residents, both indigenous and foreigners, and their Ottoman rulers. So now something was changing. The streets of the city were crowded, packed with joyful people. People who, at least in the first stages of the British occupation, genuinely and warmly welcomed the British troops. Now, I'm not saying here that they thought the British were liberated, okay? This is uh, something completely different. But I believe that, uh, you know, the Spanish consul in his diary encapsulated very well this point, saying... The popular enthusiasm was spontaneous and terrific. Every British soldier was followed by an unbelievable crowd that touched them and their horses. They admired them as heroes. But again, we, we should be careful not to give this like, uh, you know, image of liberators. Wasif Juaria celebrated the arrival of the British. He was in the streets with his friends. And although jubilant, the Arab population, Muslims and Christian, were also looking for justification to support a new foreign occupation. Many developed these forms of Arab nationalism before and during the war. What's next was the question, right? And although the image of the crusader was almost forgotten in Muslim memory, now Muslims in Jerusalem were some sort somehow forced to confront the mounting crusading mania which was spreading through Jerusalem. Yes, it was the press in Britain around Europe. But, you know, there were British soldiers in Jerusalem and so they began to hear this uh, sort of a crusading image spreading. And so, yes, Ottoman rule was over. The British arrived they brought resources. The newly appointed British governor of Jerusalem, Ronald Storrs, began to endeavor immediately to bring food and water to the population of Jerusalem. There were even stories that were created, like the famous one about uh, Allenby, you know, playing a little bit uh, with his name, that was transformed miraculously into Al-Nabi, the prophet in Arabic. You know, so Allenby became this prophet, conquering Jerusalem, delivering Jerusalem. But as I said, people were just interested in the immediate. The war was over, and there was a possibility of rebirth for the city and Jerusalemites. Obviously, away from Jerusalem in Britain, you have all of these titles, like the Times that wrote, uh, you know, in the headline, Saladin entered Jerusalem in triumph as General Allenby enters today, making connections with the Crusader time. Yeah, using a Muslim image just to sort of keep the Muslims of the empire, you know, quiet. But th the reality is that, you know, this image was very popular. There were even other connections made with uh, ancient prophecies. So the British conquest of Jerusalem was connected to a passage in the Bible, to the book of Daniel, stating, Blessed is he that wait and comes to the thousand three hundred and five and thirty days. 1335, which happened to be the Muslim year. So you get all of these, uh, which correspond to 1917 of the Gregorian calendar. So you have all of these sort of attempted connection 
with the British conquest of Jerusalem. And of course, a large, this was used as propaganda. In 1917, there were great expectations among the local population, and Christians in particular, hoped to enjoy more freedom under the ages of a Christian power. And th this should be remembered. The Arabs at large envisaged a possible inclusion in an Arab state following the awakening of Arab sentiments. The Jewish population was also open for more tolerant rule. In fact, the Zionists began to expect to profit from the change of regimes as few weeks earlier they heard of the Balfour Declaration, which was not really officially publicized, but yet there were rumors about it. Now, the British occupation of Jerusalem started a military regime that lasted until 1920. And until 1920, essentially, the British ruled Jerusalem and Palestine uh, from a military point of view, just thinking about practicalities, how to reestablish uh, infrastructures, fix the old and build new ones, making sure that there would be a good flow of resources, food, water, and other materials. But in the shadow of the military administration, obviously, we also have the build-up towards where, what then became known as the British Mandate. And it's in this context that we have to see and differentiate between the two. The military did not know they were going to stay for a long period of time, which, you know, basically it's nearly two years, a little bit more, in fact. They didn't know that there was going to be a civil administration that would take over under the ages of a newly established uh, League of Nations with the title, you know, the British Mandate in Palestine. The military were very practical. They just wanted to make sure to respect the rules that they established and to make sure that, you know, order was restored and kept under the British. And yet we have figure of transitions like Ronald Storrs, who served as military governor and also became the first civilian governor of Jerusalem who began a process of rebuilding Jerusalem according to British ideas, establishing certain rules which lasted up until nowadays. I always like to remember and remind people the rule of the White Stone of Jerusalem, which was implemented by Ronald Storr. So the British occupation of Jerusalem began this long period of British rule of Palestine and Jerusalem itself, which started as a military rule, and in 1920, following the Nebi Musa riots, turned into the civilian administration of Jerusalem, which lasted until 1948. Jerusalem became a battleground of ideologies under the British already between 1918 and 1920, so before the establishment of the mandate, between Arab nationalists, Zionists, the religious concerns turned out to be true, but also not as significant, because now we have different parties emerging. In the end, the image of the British as crusaders gained momentum and then slowly disappeared throughout the first two years of British military rule. The image of Allenby's 
as Richard the Lionheart was very popular, but he also faded away rather quickly because there are other situations emerging. Different alliances were emerging in Jerusalem. Muslims and Christians joined forces together in order to fight the emerging Zionist party, which was in itself divided into a number of uh, groups, those that wanted to cooperate with the Arabs, those that on the other spectrum wanted to establish sort of a Jewish state right away, removing the Arabs. So we have internal battles and the battles between these larger parties. And in the middle, we have the city of Jerusalem moving forwards, every day waking up with its needs to provide for its own people. 1917 certainly marked a watershed in the history of Jerusalem, but we should not think of it as a, a complete rupture. The Ottoman legacy was felt and sort of uh, interacted with the local population for decades to come. And to an extent, parts of that legacy is still very much visible in the Jerusalem of the 21st century. In the next episodes, we're going to deal with more... In the next episodes, we're going to deal with uh, some of the Jerusalemites that experienced the war. The Spanish consul, Conde de Bayobar, Otis Glazebrook, the American consul, and Lea Tenenbaum, the mistress of Jamal Pasha, but also the beauty queen of Jerusalem. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And remember, feel free to get in touch should you have any question about the events that mark the history of Jerusalem during World War I. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to support the podcast, please share it with others on social media or leave a rating and review. To catch all the latest, follow us on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook at Jerusalem Unplugged. Thanks and I'll see you next time. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.